0: Hello, and welcome back to The Awardist from Entertainment Weekly. We're taking you inside this year's best contenders for the industry's biggest awards, from the Golden Globes to the Oscars. I'm your host, Shannon Naomi Crockmall. I'm the digital director at EW, and I am joined this week uh, by my film-obsessed colleague, Katie Hasty, who's the senior movies editor here at EW. Hello. Hooray,
1: hi. Hooray. So
0: glad to finally have you on this. Movies. Movies. You love movies more than almost anyone I know. So I feel like this is perfect. Um, As part of our comprehensive awards coverage in a magazine, online at EW.com, this podcast is here where we are talking about the actors' films, TV series that should win, which will actually win, and why. Today, specifically, we are looking at what is in a name? Does it help or hurt when well-known marquee actors are in multiple projects that are getting awards buzz? Is there too much of a good thing? Um, later in the show, uh, our colleague Pia Sinha-Roi, is not here with us today, but did a great interview with John C. Riley that you will hear later on. And we're going to continue our bold takes, big predictions, both from our hosts and our guests, about how this is all going to end up on the other side. I feel like if we're going to talk about things so far in advance, the least we can do is put ourselves out there a little bit, say how we think it's all going to come down at the end of February. Um, so let's get into it. First up, name recognition. Does it help? Does it hurt? Pros, cons? We've got some people this year. Let's name a couple of the people, Katie, who this year you feel like we're already hearing about on multiple fronts.
1: Um, Well, interesting, we have Julia Roberts who is working on her first major TV project um, on Homecoming, um, but she also is in Ben is Back. And, you know, Julia is kind of a perennial favorite. She is just one of the A-list of the A-list um, that you're talking about there, but she had a great performance uh, in both. From what I understand, Homecoming's pretty great. I don't watch TV. It's, um, it's movies, a lot of movies. Yeah. <laughs> it's an awful lot. Of t- I hear it's wonderful. And um, her performance in *Bennis Is Back, um, she plays a mother to uh, an, an addict, um, which is Lucas Hedges. Fun fact, Lu- Lucas Hedges is also, also in, in multiple. multiple projects this year. Um, and he, of course, um, performed in Um, Lady Bird last year, a lot of people fell in love with him then Um, around the same time they were falling in love with Timothy Chalamet. And um, Lucas is in Ben is Back and also Boy Erased, a story about um, a gay conversion uh, program um, and his mother in that is Nicole none other kidman? than Nicole Kidman who is also in multiple projects this year um, she is in a movie called destroyer with uh, it was directed by Karin Kusama and she stars alongside Sebastian Stan in that um, it's a real different role for her because this is kind of a gritty crime tale it's not the typical kidman the 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 radiant um, you know flawless kidman that we're kind of used to she she she's always been an emotional and and strong Performer there, but this is really—I mean—it's she just looks nasty as as mm-hmm. this detective and destroyer, um, but then she's all gussied up as kind of like this younger version um, of herself. Yeah, as yeah, yeah um, uh, in that film. So in Boy Erased, she's also got the the big ha- like the big wig and and she has kind of the southern accent. This whole thing, very different roles, but you're like, oh, didn't I just see her in this other thing?
0: So both her and Nicole Kidman, I feel like, have that especially going into the Golden Globes, the potential to get both TV nods which we saw for Nicole Kidman with Big Little Lies also, and possibly on the film side, I do feel like it's a little different when you're at the Globes to have your name be called multiple times, right? You've got that, here I am in this series, especially if you've been in a Ryan Murphy show, right? You're likely to both be in a series or limited series that's getting nominated and a film. I feel like the perception of that overall is more Oh, it's so great that these beautiful big movie stars are blessing us on on all side screens <laughs> and we I think it's a little bit more just like look at this double threat or triple threat and how mm-hmm. great it is. Do you feel like that is as true at the Oscars? If like how likely is it that Nicole Kidman or Julia Roberts or one of the other folks we're going to talk about would get nominated for both best actress and best supporting actress and if she did, would that be seen as a as a strength or would that somehow be seen as competitive?
1: Well, I think that um, the name recognition alone really helps to push uh the film title, no matter what it is, up over the top. So let's say five people see Ben is back. Very okay. possible, but um but just on her name alone, people will check off the mark. The voters will take a look at that and say, I always appreciate that there. It's extremely rare, extremely rare for a performance by one actor or actress to go up against another of their their performances from that year. Extremely rare. Um, um but it it is also like You sometimes have a movie like The Favorite where it's you don 't run into the problem of not just name recognition, so you look at like Emma Stone um, and she was in La La Land a couple of years ago, and we all kind of love Emma Stone out of that role, but ultimately, like where does she land in something like the favorite, which has three female leads now are all three of them going to be nominated for best leading actress absolutely not olivia, olivia coleman 's like this is her dance. Mm-hmm. Um, but when when you look at name recognition being thrown into the hat, um, you know it's an intimidating year when it's Meryl Streep up against basically everybody, like Meryl will probably win, whatever that is. And so you look at the the Golden Globes, it's it's sometimes helpful that if there's a little bit of space between you and your last project, to give you that extra edge. Or if this is one of your first major projects, you could look at the name recognition of Lady Gaga, um, who has a really great chance at the Golden Globes because they do... um, have an appreciation for kind of the musical elements, um, of the variety elements, and of course that's that's part and parcel with Bradley Cooper in there. I think um, it's probably
0: helped that Lady Gaga gets to take that, even though she has, she is a double threat in that sense of she is also a tremendously talented pop artist. Yes, but this is the film that we're talking yeah. about with her, right? So mm-hmm. it's not like there's more than one film that we are thinking about splitting our attention through. Right. How much does this play through in terms of the studios, right? Would competing studios both be out there campaigning for an actress in different categories, right? Because most of these women are not in a position where they're likely to get nominated against themselves Mm -hmm. in Best Actress, Mm -hmm. maybe Best Supporting Actress because the roles kind of are a little different. But if you are a different studio, do you think about how is this the best use of your campaign spend and time mm-hmm. if, in fact, like, the, you would be competing against that actress someplace else?
1: Sure. Well, I think that's a valid question, but also it becomes invalidated if it's part of a director's deal or the actor signing on to do the project that no matter who they're going to be in sure. competition with. Yeah. You will push my movie. You will per- push my performance. What's interesting about the studio race this year, and this this actually kind of applies to our guest today, um, John C. Riley. Um, so, Annapurna has had a phenomenal year with really interesting films, um, but they may be, um, you know, when they when they look at the performance of John C. in uh, Sisters Brothers, but they also have the film Vice coming out mm. with Christian Bale. Mm mm-hmm. This is the same studio, and they would probably. This is the Dick and, Cheney movie, right? This is the yeah. Dick Cheney movie. Christian Bale um, makes a total transformation to look like the former vice president, and um, and it's a great performance. Like it, you know, um, this is from the director of The Big Short, and so this is an opportunity to have a little bit of a wild card into like a Best Picture race, or even just a um, original screenplay, um, or adapted. Um, that all being said, Anna Perna, Um, actually ran into this problem this year and had to divest some of their um, investments in films because they realized they had too many awards <laughs> contender. I mean, no
0: problem. yeah, what a, a terrible problem.
1: problem to have. But it becomes an expensive problem because oh. um, awards campaigns become so expensive. And so when you're like, you're like, well, I have Nicole Kidman in my cool project, which is Annapurna, Destroyer. Mm-hmm. But you also have Nicole Kidman in something like Boy Erased, which is um, directed by Joel Edgerton. Again, the name recognition, like, what are, mm-hmm. what are the possibilities here? Um, and and so I can't say how that's gonna like suss out. I think Destroyer is a really fine film, um, and it is it is not like anything else that's gonna be in the the race this year. But traditional like Oscar performances sometimes it rattles down to story. I like this story because there isn't a redemption arc. Mm-hmm. There is a Yes. A we talked about this a couple of weeks ago yeah. about the
0: the triumphant realistic story being that extra sweet spot
1: totally having historic context and all this kind of stuff is just like again this is such a strong year for film i'm super psyched to be talking about it and thinking about it but it's 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 difficult because it's putting some of our biggest stars into challenging complicated roles in ways that we haven't seen them before but then you have um, a movie like Star is Born that's been remade four times, mm-hmm. and we like that story. That's why we keep remaking it. So yeah. why you know like yeah. what does that comp- what does that do to the competition?
0: Who else this year do you feel like is in that we're glad that they're ubiquitous or have become <laughs> ubiquitous? Um, is this gonna maybe mess up their chances of getting a nomination or winning? We've seen a lot from John C. Riley, who had like mm-hmm. I P has had talks to him. You'll hear about like four different movies yeah. he has coming out. Yeah. Who else?
1: So Michael B. Jordan, I think, is a really good example um, where we see him uh, kill. I mean. Totally pun intended uh, his role in Black Panther, but mm-hmm. he's also in Creed 2 and mm-hmm. Creed Creed was Kind of like everybody at the time when the first Creed came out. It was like, oh my god Why are they not pushing that this? this is yeah. incredible what an incredible movie? Um, and same and this is very interesting. I think you know stories centered on people of color like This this was so special because it is traditional. This is part of like our traditional Movie fabric. It was just led by a person of color, and of course, they they interweaved um, that narrative into the larger. This is a boxing movie thing, but like, oh, when Creed came out, everybody's like, "What are you doing?" Girls Trip came out, and another ubiquitous um, name that that can be in discussion, not for awards this year, but was in awards talk two years ago was Tiffany Haddish mm-hmm. for Girls Trip. And, and
0: she's got a lot going on
1: this boy, year. Boy, does she ever. And that that's like kind of the weird thing. It kind of doesn't matter that she's actually made a couple stinkers this year, like some of the lowest rated films that have come out this year, including um, Nobody's Fool, um, uh, which is the new Tyler Perry movie. Um, But just because, but people love Tiffany, and I think that um, she's going to be she's going to be starring in other dramatic roles um, in the years to come, and that's going to be a name that's going to keep cropping up. Um, But um, just in terms of like who else should be in the mix, like you know, I I think
0: it's like it's exciting to me that we have someone like Mahershala Ali Mm -hmm. or Michael B. Jordan who are or Viola Davis Mm -hmm. who are now regularly in contention for awards year in and year out, where it's like almost every year there's a solid Viola Davis story for us to be talking about. But it's still, I think, reflective of what the gap is in access to roles, that there's a difference between that or even say like Claire Foy, who hasn't been in a lot of movies this year, Mm -hmm. right? Where I think with white actresses, we're still seeing the opportunity for them to be in two, three, four potential awards contenders. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it's been a really strong year for Mm -hmm. movies. But I'm excited to help us get to the place where I would love to see Regina King in three movies in a year that we're talking about all being potential huge standouts.
1: A hundred percent. And I think that. You know, you brought up Mahershala, and he, um, of course, got acclaim um, for Moonlight a couple years ago, and now he's back with Green Book, and Green Book being paired with Viggo Mortensen. And that, you know, honestly, this is just, this is a reflection uh, quite a bit of of basic, you know, uh, bias, of basic... Um, normative bias. Um, we are so used to seeing white people who are skinny and handsome or beautiful in these very traditional ways. Um, and that is not to take away from the talent of Claire Foy, who I just think is so fabulous, or Nicole, Kim, or any of them. Um, but, they, but when we celebrate the fabric, we also have to, to recognize that there are um, discriminations, including in contracts and how much people are getting paid. Um, there is there is inequality still all over the place, and just because somebody is a very very fine actor like Mahershala Ali, it still has to recognize. You still have to recognize that most He's lead roles. Not
0: making roles, Joaquin Phoenix money.
1: No, or you know, or I don't know what. Maybe he makes Jolly I mean, Ranchers. Who so. knows? Yeah, I don't know. But <laughs> um, but the the hope is that somebody would get paid as much as that and receive as much recognition. But most scripts are still being written with a white lead in mind, whether that is explicit or. Or, or you push through a script that says, this is a black man, this is a Latina woman, um, it, it may re- reach the echelons at your studio who's willing to put millions behind it, but they say, we need something that's a sure shot. Mm-hmm. Give us a white person. Mm-hmm. And that that's Here not something... Here's your
0: Ethan Hawke. Yeah. Here's your Joaquin Phoenix.
1: Yeah. Fill in the blank. Wonderful actors. Ethan Hawke is a great example of somebody who's all over the place this year. And... And in, in, in my opinion, And he, as a director,
0: right? So and as a director. First Reformed, yes. Juliet is Naked, and then he directed Blaze.
1: Yes, and First Reformed, Honest to God, is my favorite film this year. Um, that is my number one. But uh, it is, it, 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 again, this falls into the, like this category where it's like it's Ethan Hawke and it's Amanda Seafried. And I love those actors, and this was a superb film. Um, I also saw Ethan Hawke and Juliet Naked, which is this like anti rom-com which I love and then Blaze is a great music story and I've seen him all over the place I I'm not tired of him and that that can be a reflection on me but it could also be a reflection on just like where we're putting our interests and in, uh, investing our money and mm-hmm. our, our our word of mouth that whole thing but what would, would I love to see Janelle Monet and other things I was
0: thinking about her cuz I was thinking about how she had moonlight and hidden figures mm-hmm. in the same year and it was just like, and I feel like that year back to back with this year musically. I mean, is there anything mm-hmm. Janelle Monae can't do better than almost everyone?
1: <laughs> <laughs> than all the things. A triple threat, a quadruple her to see threat. her in three films. Yeah, I'd
0: to really see what that looks like.
1: Um, same with Tessa Thompson. I'll see her in anything. Um, and of course they starred together in in uh, Janelle Monae music video, which is excellent and delicious.
0: Tessa definitely, I feel like on the blockbuster side of this, is getting to a place where it's exciting that she is getting ubiquitous in big budget. Roles, yeah, um, which I think is going to be even in this just next year with Men in Black and mm-hmm. with um, Creed 2 having just come out, I think we're just going to see more and more of her.
1: Yeah, and but again, it's just studios need proof in the pudding that people will part ways with their hard-earned money at the theater or through streaming and video VOD and, and rentals um, that that people are willing to see people of color lead. And Black Panther, if anything, this year is testament to mm-hmm. that will it turn, will it change body and beauty norms within hollywood
0: I, I think like so. the question is also i feel like what you've kind of convinced me of even as we've just been talking about this is proving that point in that big box office blockbuster way is like the proof prerequisite still, sort of, to prove it for a much lower budget, awards-driven film. You'd think it would be the opposite. Mm. And there may be that space to really break through, like Mahershala Ali, and sort of then rise to a bigger, um, you know, leading man, big role, big budget Mm -hmm. kind of place. But it also seems to be a little bit the other way, right? Where it's like you have to prove that these actors can carry a big film So that some of that selling and campaigning of like why we should vote for this person for an award does itself um, in order to get them into these very awards focused. Possibly smaller budget mm-hmm. um, on the production side, anyway, yeah. before they do the marketing.
1: Right, and I, I think that that kind of goes along with some Hollywood like wisdom that you know a lot of studios put their focus on ten million or less or hundred million plus. Mm-hmm. Um, like, what's the in between? This is so crazy pants to me. But you look at somebody like Alfonso Cuarón, um, who um, took it home with Gravity just a couple years ago with Sandra Bullock in outer space. But then he's doing a film like Roma, that's in black and white with no-name actors in Mexico, mm-hmm. um, and that is like that is such a rare movie. It's such a like lightning in a bottle. That like will um, will that lead actress ever see, you know, acclaim and and uh, and love from Hollywood ever again? I have no idea. But what he has with this very very special film Roma, like it could cause. I,
0: I mean, I think you could there. argue that he's a good example of the ubiquitous director. Right, where it's like starting to get to this place where with him, I think we'll see this with Barry Jenkins, Mm -hmm. like certainly I think this is the intent behind First Man and Damien Chazelle is to continue this ubiquity of the director is going to get an Oscar nomination. Um, And we see that in the same way, not that they are as recognizable a name as Steve Carell, Mm -hmm. right, Um, but... I think you get that happening a little bit, especially when the nominations are coming from their peer groups. Yeah,
1: and especially when when somebody who is an acclaimed actor like Ryan Gosling chooses over and over again to pair with this person, it, mm-hmm. they really kind of feed each other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but again, it's sort of like you look at like Bradley Cooper. Everybody knows who that is. It's almost yeah. like he's a shoe in, no matter what people ultimately think of this film 10 years from now. He's a shoo-in now because it's Bradley Cooper. Mm -hmm. We know who that is.
0: Yeah. I did a little bit of research looking at the historical context of people kind of competing against themselves. All of these are actors who basically competed in both the best actor or actress and best supporting. I don't feel like it's a strong argument in favor of being in a lot of films in a year, <laughs> but maybe that's changing. I don't know. So uh, in 2007, we had Cate Blanchett, who was nominated for I'm Not There, and Elizabeth. Lost both. Uh, 2004, uh, Jamie Foxx was nominated for Collateral and Ray. He won for Ray. So he managed to, I think that doesn't seem surprising in retrospect, especially given our sort of escapist versus realist conversation we had, <laughs> Ray. I feel like it's the perfect blend of that. Uh, Julianne Moore in 2002 was nominated for The Hours and Far From Heaven, which is is really competing against yourself in two movies that are kind of sim- not similar, but I felt like were such a similar vibe or market. Um, she lost both of those. The only like real interesting year of this, in 1993, both Holly Hunter and Emma Thompson ended up with two nominations each. Holly, for the, uh, for Piano and for The Firm, could not believe that I had forgotten or that that did get a nomination. But OK, and Emma Thompson <laughs> for Remains of the Day and In the Name of the Father, very classic Oscar kind of movie. So they were up against each other in two categories, yep. Best Actress and Supporting. Um, and Emma Thompson won neither. Which makes me a little sad, (laughs) although I remember that year. Holly won Best Actress for uh, *The Piano*, Mm -hmm. um, but then in the supporting category, they both lost to Anna Paquin, who, of course, was Holly's co-star in *The Piano*. Right. What like that is a very all about Eve kind of year. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I don't remember it being that contentious. But now I I feel inspired to go back and find out if that was actually a deeply contentious year or if those women were all. Yeah. I remember that but i remember because of the excitement around the piano having a female director and like there was a lot more discussion even then mm-hmm. of this is good for women everyone Seemingly put it aside and chill out. And let's let
1: celebrate out. women. Yeah. yeah, that whole thing. It, it's interesting I I don't like and I wonder about the word like contentious what kind of contest what kind of um, you know Emotionality that brings to it because it might rattle down to simple math for the voter mm-hmm. um, I think we're I honestly think we're gonna see that um, this year with uh, two important races, that's Best Actress and Best Actor. Um, Best Actress, we've got Glenn Close, who has been nominated multiple times and never won, Mm -hmm. and she's in The Wife, which is a really excellent role for her. And then you have Robert Redford, who has won for Director, uh, and he has said that this is his last this is his last acting role uh, in The Old Man and the Gun. And so you throw that into the into the mix or you take a look at a year where it's like, oh, Holly, we're going to give you this thing over here. I'm not going to give you this thing. It could just rattle down to simple math or um, emotional math, I should say. Yeah. Where it's just like, how do we sprinkle, how do we sprinkle goodness over like good, when we have nice things, how do, how do we reward them?
0: Yeah. All right. Uh, that's where I think we are with, if you can shoot yourself in the foot by being too talented, cast too many times, loved by too many amazing awards, um, award-winning uh, directors, screenwriters. If you can be in too many Annapurna films in one year, <laughs> uh, and where that where that stands. Um, thank you for walking us through that. You got. You gave us some bold takes there at the end, which leads us perfectly into my asking you for a couple more. Um, I feel like when we're talking about awards so early, it's getting less early. I mean, the Golden Globe nominations are coming up very, very soon. But it's crazy to me that we're talking about this and we're still, you know, uh, like six weeks out from Oscar nominations. Like, we're not gonna have that part of even who the field is narrowed down for quite a while. But I feel like if we're gonna spend so much time talking and expect people to listen to what we have to say this early, it's only fair for us to make some hot predictions, old predictions. Throw them out there. Um we've heard uh, from me and Bill and Pia on some of these already, but Katie, I'd love to know you're you're seeing you see so many films. I always know that I can count on you to have seen a film, to really have a strong take on it, but also be able to describe it really well, which I appreciate so much and is such a benefit to us at EW. But uh, we have been tracking, Pia's been keeping up to date. A contender list with sort of the biggest, most likely. But what's one film you haven't seen yet, if that's possible? Is there a film you haven't seen yet that is still going to be in contention, but that you think is probably going to be taken pretty seriously, either at the Globes or the Oscars?
1: Um, I say this because, uh, there's a lot of Emily Blunt love this year. Mm. Um, I have seen Quiet Place. I'm just gonna, I just, I'm gonna continue to lie to everybody that I see in their faces that I've seen Mary Poppins Returns. I have not, I have not seen Mary Poppins is out Returns. Of
0: the I haven't seen it yet either. <sighs> I'm excited. Excited to see it. I'm
1: excited to see it. I mean, it looks lovely, and I hear she is just wonderful in that yeah. role. Um, and of course, Lin Manuel Miranda is um, is just the toast of the Tonys, and and um, a really just lovable guy. And I just think it's going to make a bazillion million you're hoping dollars. Hoping
0: to see it, and you're rooting for it a little bit. I'm you're rooting as great for as it. You want it to
1: be. Yeah, I'm rooting for it because um, because uh, Emily Blunt is so lovely Mm -hmm. and if she doesn't get anything this year that's not going to get her down because i think that she there's this fallacy that everybody thinks that actors get to choose what they want to do this goes back to the a of the a-list right you 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 know, that that every actor is given, like, 10 scripts and been like, sign one, you have your choice, or sign none, enjoy your year, you know, whatever. Um, Emily Blunt is still carving it out. And I'm not saying that she doesn't have her choice, um, but I am saying that, like, she's still trying to define herself as an actress, and I'm excited to see what she does in the And future. I think that goes
0: to that core of, like, movie magic, for lack of a better word, which is every time I go see a film that I think is just so stunning, I know because we work in this town and we know people who work in production and we've had these experiences and even just interviewing really talented actors so you can see that like crushing disappointment when a film they worked so hard on didn't come out the way they had hoped. Mm -hmm. It wasn't as beautiful or perfect. Like it is a miracle that a great movie gets made.
1: It's a miracle any movie gets made. It's
0: hundreds and hundreds of people and little decisions and little things that happen along the way that have to really all align Mm -hmm. to make a movie that you walk out of and you're just like, oh my god, that was gorgeous and beautiful and perfect, right? Like that's such the exception to the rule rather than the rule. Yeah, Um, And I think that in its spirit is like what awards are sort of meant to honor is that just alchemy of like holy, how did all of this actually work? So I feel like for someone like Emily Blunt, who has been in some very good movies, but hasn't maybe been in one that is like that jaw-dropping, like this defines everything that will come after that, I root for them to have that moment, (laughs) right? Okay, what is one one film you have seen that most people haven't seen yet? It's either an only very limited release or um, it hasn't been released at all yet that you are so excited for people to get to see?
1: Um, I think, and this is, um, you know, in a year where everybody's talking about where does streaming live. Um, Rarely do I say the word Hulu, but Minding the Gap is this documentary um, about these three guys who grew up together, skateboarded together. Um, You read the synopsis and you're like, I don't know.
0: Mm." Also a lot of skateboarding movies this year.
1: There are three skateboarding (laughs) movies. The ubiquity of skateboarding, that is our next topic. (laughs) Um, but, But in terms of like...
0: In terms of why do you love it so much? Tell me, I haven't seen it. Tell me why I should go watch it. I, I,
1: I used the the term "lightning in a bottle earlier, and and I don't want to I don't want to overuse it, but this is such a rare story about um a young filmmaker who has managed to capture his, his own life as well as his friend's life over the course of ten years and managed to weave it into a narrative and into this um, this beautiful montage of of coming of age. Um, growing up with domestic abuse, um, the power of young men finding friendship with each other. And it is so, you can't write it in a script. Um, it is such a rare um, gift when somebody has identified the thing that they love, and they could do it every day, and they do it every day, and they do it for 10 years. And then they, they, they ably put something together that is... Um, That is that is stirring. These aren't these aren't my guys. I wasn't Mm -hmm. like uh, skateboarding growing up. These weren't this was not my new
0: world, but you love Um, watching. You
1: don't have to grow up in the Midwest or you don't have to do these things to recognize yourself in these young people and him as a as a young director making a documentary so powerful. I just want to spread the uh, Bing Lu and this is on Hulu. It's called Minding the Gap. and You're going to lose your mind.
0: All right. I, you, you sold me. I'll watch it. <laughs> all right. Those are our bold takes. Coming up next, we have Pius and Roy talking to John C. Riley about all of the many, many great films he has been in this year. Um, and he has a bold take or a prediction of his own, um, who he would campaign for, for um, an award nomination. And here it is.
2: Um so I am joined right now by the one and only John C Riley. I just thank you so much for being here.
3: My pleasure, good morning.
2: Um I would like to just spend the next 15 minutes talking purely about stepbrothers, but I will not.
3: That's probably <laughs> for the best. <laughs> There's a lot of other things to talk about.
2: There are, there are, although for some reason I can always talk about stepbrothers. Brothers, but actually, speaking... I wish I could
3: say the same. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Isn't it amazing, that movie and <laughs> the impact it's had and the legacy? It's, yeah, it is. It makes it me uh, laugh. But, the, but what I did want to ask you about is actually, I think that there is a nice little uh, connection there with the two movies that we are going to talk about today. Um, one is, of course, The Sisters Brothers, and the other one is Stan and Ollie. Right. And I would say that there's a strong theme of brotherhood through both of those.
3: (laughs) Brotherhood, yeah, certainly partnership. Um, Stan and Ollie were less like brothers and more like a married couple almost, it seemed like. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, I have four movies coming out between September and January that are all duos. So it must be something I like to do because I keep doing it over and over again.
2: <laughs> but they're always also different. Like The Sisters Brothers is uh, something I definitely want to talk to you about, which is um, it's not a movie that uh, I've necessarily seen you in. I've never seen you in the Wild West before. And then you pair up with Joaquin Phoenix. Um, so just t- talk me through kind of how that all came together because I know you were involved in the production of that.
3: Yeah, uh, about eight years ago now, my wife and I... Um, came across Patrick DeWitt's novel before it was published mm-hmm. because we were working on a film together called Terry and Patrick had written the script for it. And that was such a great experience that at the end of it, we said, well, do you have any other writing? And he said, well, I just so happened to have this novel I just wrote that hasn't been published yet. And uh, Allison read it and was just Totally taken with it and then gave it to me. And, well, long story short, uh, we got a whole bunch of people involved, including Jacques Odillard um, and Joaquin. And uh, yeah, it was an incredible odyssey making that movie. We shot it in Spain and Romania, a little bit in France. And um, it was a real labor of love. And it's a beautiful story about brothers. I, I've had a lot of different brothers in my life, not just my actual brothers, but a lot of very close partnerships in my life mm-hmm. that uh, felt a lot like Eli and Charlie in that film. And, um, and Joaquin and I got really close during the making of that movie. Uh, at first, it was difficult for us to make eye contact <laughs> because it was just so intense. I think the enormity... And you, you didn't
2: really know each other before as well. Right, right? we
3: met a couple of times. We had Paul Thomas Anderson in common, right. but the enormity of what we had to do, these guys were so... These brothers were so closely linked in the story that... Um, we realized we had a big mountain to climb there, and so we just started spending time together. And, and for a long stretch of time, we mm-hmm. lived together when we we're making the film. <laughs> we'd drive to work together, we'd eat together and make dinner. Like,
2: so you basically became brothers,
3: yeah. Well, we try to just mirror the, the relationship of Eli and Charlie minus the murder, so uh, <laughs> that was um that was best done by just spending time together. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, I think, I think it was just really fascinating to see the uh, relationship that you two do embody. It did feel very much like brothers, but also you two, your characters are kind of opposites to each other as well in their motivations. We see um Eli well,
3: like to think that they're opposites. <laughs> At least Eli likes to think he's the opposite of Charlie, but I think, in reality, they're much more in common than they yeah. than one of or the other might believe. Eli is a very protective older brother, um, but he's also just as violent as Charlie. So, um, yeah, it's funny. He, Joaquin's character, Charlie, even calls out his brother, my, Eli, in in our story, and says like, "Well, you think you protect me? That's why you're doing this. Mm-hmm. Is that how, what you tell yourself to keep yourself thinking that you're a good guy?" Good old Eli, you know, the truth is we're the sisters brothers, both of us, and we do this together. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I love that scene in the movie and, uh, and yes, it manifests itself in different ways, but this violence is in both of them. And the beautiful thing about that story is, is that we, we present this idea that even the most damaged, messed up, uh, negative people. Yeah can transform, if they decide to, into something else, into a more civilized version of themselves mm-hmm. or a more peaceful version of themselves or at least a more fully realized version of themselves.
2: Yeah. I, I do think that was um, that that was unexpected in this story that you're really following these two brothers, you know, bounty hunter brothers who are going traipsing through the Wild West, chasing someone. And I didn't expect to see that level of kind of... Um, in inner insecurities and uh, hopes and desires coming out, especially in your character that well, was that's fascinating. the stunning
3: thing about the book. It's what I think what makes the book so original and startling, and certainly was the film has this in common, is that um, we kind of we avoid a lot of the cliches of the Western of this kind of hard man, this opaque, macho unknowable mysterious cowboy Mm -hmm. image you know that's just not true you know that's not the truth of men's experience right and Jacques wanted to make a film that was very relevant to our time and men are re-examining their roles and their stereotypes Mm -hmm. in concert with women examining the stereotypes and all the pressures that they've been under all this time um, so it's a real reckoning culturally, and it just so happens, before that even started happening right. in, in, in earnest, we were making this film. Um, so it dovetailed really nicely into a place where where yeah. people were already talking about this kind of stuff. So, you know, when people are like, wow, you show men that are sensitive in this film. Isn't that surprising? <laughs> like, well, to me, all men are sensitive. All men. Every single man I've ever met is sensitive. Some of them like to act macho and blustery. and But oftentimes those guys are the most sensitive. Right? You know, you say the wrong it's thing to someone like that and they get really wounded. So mm-hmm. I think that's, that's the way out of this conundrum we're in right now in the world, I think. is through empathy for each other. Rather than... Drawing the differences between us, mm-hmm. draw the commonalities between men and women, and draw the commonalities between countries. And you know, this that whole film was made internationally, yeah. with a lot of different people from all over the world having to c- cooperate and communicate and understand each other's languages. And mm-hmm. um, it was a real manifestation of a of a type of hope that I think uh, all of us had for the world. You know, yeah. we were tra- telling a specific story about 1851, but we were also trying to um say something that was relevant to people right now.
2: I think you're absolutely right. It did feel actually very timely in what it was examining. Um but then we move on to something like Stan and Ollie and we're seeing so I grew up watching Laurel and Hardy. Yeah, me too. Um it, it's it's kind of iconic, you know, they were they were the pioneers of doing what they did. They were the, the kind of first bromance in Hollywood perhaps. <laughs>
3: Yeah, people like to say that, but I don't. Again, I don't think of them as brothers. You know, I really think of them as like being in love with each other in a platonic way. Obviously, mm-hmm. um, they didn't have that going on in their relationship, but but it was nonetheless. It felt there is a female and male quality to them, but right. they almost pass it back and forth. You know, who yeah. who gets to be the mother at this moment or that moment in in their stage personas. Right. Um. With well, a really interesting thing about exploring their lives and. Um, it was a really kind of sacred mission t- taking mm-hmm. on this role and telling their story, their own personal story behind the scenes became this really special, um, it was a big responsibility. Uh, and well, what was the re-
2: unseen story of them as well, which I thought, yeah.
3: Was... And what was interesting about them is like, they, I mean, there's a lot of things interesting about mm-hmm. them. Of course I could talk for hours about, <laughs> about them, but, um, a couple of interesting things that you might not know. You saw the film, I assume.
2: I, I have seen the you film, okay. yes.
3: So you know that in the film, we show that during their heyday, when yep. they were making all these films and they were the most popular comedians in the whole world, yeah, not just in America or in Hollywood, mm-hmm. in the whole world, they were, you know, you know, Argentina thought mm-hmm. they were theirs. Italy thought they were theirs. Germany. And each of these places had their own names for them. Yeah. They, they literally thought of them as these, you know, not, not, not. Country-specific people—they right. were they, the world embraced them as well, their they own. Did
2: tra- they just translated and uh, transcended.
3: But they were um, very different people. So mm-hmm. when in their heyday, when they were doing all that and they became so popular, they Stan was working very hard and did a lot of the writing, and Shadow directed most of their films. Mm-hmm. And was, you know, in the editing room, he was across every aspect of their filmmaking. And Oliver, you know, was an important part of the creative process in terms of being a sounding board of what he thought was funny or not. Right. A crucial final bit of the process was Oliver's opinion about the material. Right. But in general, Oliver was off at the racetrack, (laughs) going out to restaurants, going down to Tijuana, enjoying the fruits of Hollywood, you know. And, um... And he was also a very romantic and poetic kind of person. Yeah. And he was not a workaholic. You know, he he was someone who believed in enjoying life, you know, and he comes across in his work. So as a result of that, when they would finish their work, mm-hmm. they would often just go opposite ways. And they even though they spent a lot of time together mm-hmm. and there were this miraculous partnership, they actually weren't super close personally until the time that we show in our film when they started doing these theatrical tours. Right. Because they couldn't get movie work. And they had no back end or, or, you know, they received none of the box office or residuals from TV. So they were just salaried employees while they were making those mo- right. movies. So they became broke. And the only thing they had to go back to was this vaudeville kind of stuff that they started yeah, right. out doing long ago. Yeah. And, uh, and during that time, they became really, really close. And that's when they realized, wow, I love this person. And yeah. uh, I don't not only do I love the act and I love what this person does in our act, but I love this person because they were forced to be together. They yeah. didn't have the luxury of just jetting off to their different lives. They had to spend every train ride, every hotel, right. every backstage together. So um, that's a really beautiful um, transformation too that happens in that film. You know, we talked about our transformation, yeah. the sisters, brothers. This transformation, this deepening of their relationship at the end of their lives, at the very end yeah. of Oliver's life, yeah. uh, was a really moving thing to explore. And having been a performer my whole life, I really understand what it's like to depend on someone like that backstage and the conversations that you have behind the scenes while you're creating illusion right. together. Um, it felt like even though it was this huge responsibility and very overwhelming to take on such a, a well-known and beloved character as Oliver Hardy, um, I, knew, I know what it's like right. to do what they did for a living. And I know what it's like to have a partner, but <laughs> that said, those guys were partners for their entire
2: That was their career. career. They came together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they
3: started off, of course, working differently. Oliver yeah. was interested in being a singer, and he they were both kind of bit players, and yeah. then they were thrown together yeah. by Hal Roach. Literally, he lost Harold Lloyd because Harold Lloyd realized, like, wait a minute. I should start my own studio. Like, what am I? Why am I giving you all this money? Like, so he went off, and as soon as he lost Harold Lloyd, Hal Roach freaked out and was like, "I gotta find another star. Here, the fat guy and the skinny guy, just throw them together." And they didn't know each other, right? And so that actually gave me confidence as we were crafting this story. I thought, well, you know, Steve and I were just thrown together. What are we gonna do? Like, we have to find this chemistry and recreate this you know, one of the greatest partnerships in the mm-hmm. history of mankind, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, but what gave me confidence was like, well, that's what happened to Stan and Ollie. So yeah. y- you'll figure it, you'll figure it out. You know, they yeah. did and, and you'll figure it out. Um, we
2: and it was really and i i will say it was actually really nice to see that side of their that very iconic partnerships yeah well that's
3: that's why i wanted to do the film yeah because the truth is you can go and watch it's never been easier to watch laurel and hardy and i urge everyone who's listening to this right now Yeah, you
2: can get it on youtube
3: every single thing they ever did is available for free on youtube and i I can tell you i I watch it still yeah despite the fact that i'm completely immersed in laurel and hardy right now (laughs) i still watch their films when i go home yeah i'll take a bath and Put the iPad up and just roll through in YouTube <laughs> clips one after the other, and they still make me laugh out loud. You know, yeah. and that's something I can't say about some of the other sure. you know wonderful you know, people of that era. Yeah. I love Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton, yeah. Harold Lloyd. But when I watch their work, I think like, wow, that's impressive. He's hanging from a clock tower. Holy cow! You know, like yeah. <laughs> it's really impressive. It's like, um, but, but. I laugh out loud when I watch Lauren Hardy, even if I'm by myself. No, you're
2: right. I mean, it is. So
3: that that allows me to feel like when I'm doing this kind of stuff like we're doing today, I mean, this is an awards podcast, right? It's about awards. So let's call it like it is. We're out here trying to get awards for the film. (laughs) But the truth is... it's very easy for me to do because I have sure. this higher purpose of reintroducing people to Stan and Ollie, which is such a gift to the world, you know, yeah, absolutely. And it makes it not about me and not about like my own personal satisfaction or my own accolades yeah. or whatever. If this movie gets any kind of nomination or awards, it's a way to introduce a new generation of people to Laurel and Hardy, which absolutely. has happened over and over again from yeah. the TV era to the videotape yeah. era. And now we're trying to get it to happen for younger people on the YouTube yeah. era. Well,
2: before, before I let you go I have one last question for you we're asking everybody if they want to make one big bold prediction for the awards uh coming up because of course this is the awardist podcast um and just I was wondering if there's any other performances that you've seen outside of your own works that you just feel like you would love to see uh recognized this year
3: well to tell you the truth, I've been I've been on a nonstop promotional you tour.
2: You have full films coming
0: out. In no, the literally next, like, since
3: month. August thirtieth, I've been going nonstop <laughs> yeah. all over the world. I've yeah. been doing many many European engagements yeah. and stuff too. So I haven't seen a lot of my peers' work. That's one of the things I'm really Back. looking forward to this Christmas break is watching some of these screeners and getting to like really getting dig in because I know there's a lot of great performances yeah. out there. Um, and this is going to sound cheesy, but the only thing I can think of offhand, g- given the fact that I haven't seen most yeah. or, or or any really of the stuff <laughs> that's in contention right now, um, I wish there was a way to acknowledge actors in animated films, because Sarah Silverman, what she does in Wreck It Ralph or uh, Ralph Breaks the Internet, is really really something. And talking about this women's yeah. stuff and women's empowerment, you know, here we have a Disney movie, a Disney, a company that. You know, arguably was the source of many very rigid stereotypes Absolutely. for girls, yeah, giving Sarah Silverman you know a Jewish yeah. American comedian a platform on which to address some of yeah. this stuff. And they go in. We go into it in the film, and we literally talk about this
2: is the princess's wow, yeah, scene, by how, the way. And it's one of my favorite How hard it is to live up to
3: this princess stereotype. That is a huge thing for little girls. Yeah. So, um, and that a lot of that came from Sarah and myself yeah. behind the scenes, advocating from a feminist point of view right. and advocating for you know, parody and the relationship between yep. Ralph and Vanellope. So I wish there was some way to acknowledge that. And uh, I suppose when, when a film like that gets nominated for a Best Animated or whatever, it is an acknowledgement of the actors. But, but I, you'd like I the wish performances. someone could say like, man, Sarah Silverman, <laughs> good on you, man. You really did something special for girls this year.
2: And that was actually incredible. I love the movie, but that scene was fantastic. So I just want to thank you so much for being here, for talking yeah. to us about your movies. and uh, And everyone going See the sisters, brothers, and Stan and Ollie, and Ralph breaks the internet, and everything else that John C. Riley is always going to be in, and is so wonderful in.
3: And then I'll go into hiding, so you can you can start to miss me again.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Thank
3: you.
0: We'll be back next Tuesday with more on the Golden Globes, more special guest interviews. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Thanks for listening to us and for joining us at Entertainment Weekly. Have a great week.